0: Hello and welcome to episode 106 of the Thinking LSAT podcast in Los Angeles. I'm Nathan Fox, with me in Washington, D.C. I have Ben Olson. Ben, how you doing?
1: Good. Thanks. You getting any
0: uh, weather out there?
1: Yeah, we get, we're getting some rain. That's it. I imagine it's, I don't know if it's the tail end of these storms that are coming through, but, um, you know, we're getting rain.
0: Yeah. You got another huge one down in the Gulf, right?
1: Yeah. Yeah. Yeah.
0: We have an update uh, from LSAC, actually, for September test takers. Maybe we should dive right into that before we go deeper into the mailbag. Yeah, let's do it. Cool. Um, We got just a quick note here. It says, Gents, what do you think about this email from LSAC? Maybe there is some good in them after all. If you decide to talk about this on the podcast, feel free to use my name, which is pronounced Josue. So thank you, Josue, for uh, this update we have uh, the full text of the email here. It's a. Did you read this, Ben? It's like a very friendly uh, tone that they struck. Yeah, yeah, I did. Yeah. Uh, Dear September LSAT registrant, we are writing with additional information for September LSAT registrants affected by Hurricane Harvey. We hope that you and your loved ones are okay. We are still actively working with test center supervisors in that region to determine when or where we might be able to offer the LSAT in the Southeast, uh, in the southeast Texas area, Because there are so many open questions, we do not have any additional September test center information to share with you at this time. So we are providing two immediate options for September registrants who have been impacted by the storm. There will be no additional charge for either of the following options. Um, And the two options are test date change. They're gonna let you change for free to either December, 2017 or February, 2018. Um, Or you can change your September LSAT to an alternate location. So they're gonna give you a free test center change. Uh, they provided the phone number here, which is 215-968-1001. Again, that's the LSAC, uh, 215-968-1001. Or you can uh, email lsacinfo@lsac.org at lsac.org to submit the requests. Um, they have a deadline here of Monday, September 11, so hopefully this podcast will get out before that. Uh, but you should have gotten an email anyway if you're somebody in the region who is affected. Uh, so I thought that was nice of them. I especially liked the sentence that they put in there about you and your loved ones. I thought that was nice.
1: Yeah, this is um, <clears throat> extraordinarily nice compared to so many of the other emails that we've seen. Uh <laughs> which strike a very lawyerly tone Exactly. And don't seem to care at all about whatever the person's circumstances might be. You know, it almost seems like they're preparing for litigation and mm. not saying anything but also um including many many sentences. So, it's <laughs> like <laughs> um I think in the context of LSAC's history, this is an extraordinarily nice email. Yeah. And um I wonder if it has something to do with the increased competition from the GRE, if it has something to do with um, their new leadership. Uh, who knows? But something's changed. <laughs> yeah, evidently a, a, real,
0: a real human uh, got put in charge of the LSAC's email account for a day. Yeah. So that's, that's <laughs> nice to see. Um, all right, next email here says, hello, this one was addressed uh, directly to me. says, hello, Nathan, I'm a long time listener and recently decided to check out Nathan's LSAT books. I found them on Amazon. Before buying them, I have three questions. One, which one would you recommend I read first? I am on a limited budget, so I cannot buy them all. Um, The answer to that is you should check out my little LSAT primer. It's called Introducing the LSAT. It is uh, my cheapest book. It is the quickest read and I definitely recommend it, especially if you're just starting out or if you wanna kinda get into my way of thinking about the test, definitely just read that little primer first. So introducing the LSAT is the place to start. Uh, Are these books available in ebook or audio format? No, they are not. I used to have Kindle versions of my books, but LSAC was such a pain in the ass on the digital licensing that I uh, stopped doing them in ebook format and they're only available now in print. So hmm. I, I'm sorry for that, but it was just because I just couldn't make it through all of the LSAC crazy requirements of what what I had to do in order to be able to digitally um, distribute. Including like they just weren't happy with Amazon's own digital, like, you know, because I was only publishing it on Kindle. Hmm. And but they weren't happy with that. Like that's too easily pirated or
1: something. So it's just like that's all right. really interesting. Since <sighs> Amazon would presumably be very worried about (laughs) pirating their books, you know, via their Kindle.
0: Yeah. Yep. Anyway, uh, no,
1: I don't distribute anything
0: electronically. I only distribute print stuff uh, because of my LSAC license. Um, Yeah. Third question, I know that you and Ben hate the Kaplan LSAT books and advise advise people to look elsewhere for prepping, but if someone only had a Kaplan book to read, <laughs> then would you make an exception? Because uh, this correspondent says, I do have a digital Kaplan book. Any information you can provide me with would be very helpful. Thank you, Anonymous. I don't know, Ben, what do you think about that if somebody's got a Kaplan book?
1: Well, um, there are several Kaplan books out there. I wonder which one it is. I'm not so much thinking about the advice that the book would provide, but the practice problems. Uh, some of their books have a ton of official practice problems, and that would seem like a good use of your time. So, that's Yeah, all got.
0: <laughs> just do the questions and don't read any of their <laughs> analysis or explanations or stupid strategies, because, boy, do I hear some crazy things coming from uh, students.
1: Yeah, well, I've actually looked at some of their explanations, and um, it's it's disappointing, uh, at least the ones that I've looked at. They like to focus on, like, they like to give catchy names for a lot of things, right. but they oversimplify the underlying issue, and, so, and then they'll put those catchy names in bold, so they'll be like, if you read their explanations, it will say something like, answer C is wrong because it is out of scope. And the right. out-of-scope will be in bold. And then um, the the rest of the explanation doesn't really explain uh, adequately why that answer choice is out-of-scope. That is a thing. Um, things can be irrelevant and not have yeah. any impact on the conclusion. But it's uh, it's sort of like I think they're trying to oversimplify and make this really easy. Like, oh, yes, A is is this other thing? And C, is this other thing? And um, it kind of distracts you from the underlying problem, which is what we really need to get into.
0: Yeah. I Out of scope, specifically, that phrase is, when I hear people say that, I immediately have a hypothesis that they have no idea what they're talking about.
1: Yeah. I (laughs) I just
0: don't, I'm never satisfied with that from a student. Oh, that's yeah. out of scope. Wait, what are you talking about? What type of question is this? What do you mean out of scope? What? <laughs> Where did no, you get it's that?
1: No, yeah, it's exactly. It's the same thing as saying like the argument is flawed. Okay, great. Yeah. Why is it flawed? <laughs> yeah. Like, what? What makes this answer choice out of scope? Is it because it's too strong and um, or not strong enough, or is it because it talks about something that's irrelevant? Um, talking about a group that we weren't talking about in the original passage. Those sort of, um. Notes I think are so much more useful than just the generic. It's out of scope.
0: Yeah, get more specific. Tell me why it's out of scope. Like, tell me. Well, we were talking about this, and this is talking about this other different thing, and that's why it's not Mm going to do anything here. But um, yeah, Yeah. the pronouncement of out of scope it really is silly. I especially on like strengthen questions, weaken questions. You know, there'll be an answer that brings up some new fact, right? New idea. And it's absolutely talking about different concepts, different stuff, right? There can be mm-hmm. brand new uh, nouns and brand new stuff happening. Mm-hmm. But it can absolutely be a great strengthener or a great weakener. Yeah. Um, if you're looking and, at
1: a which one of the following if true question, right. <laughs> then uh, out of scope doesn't even apply. And so obsessing about that. Seems.
0: Yeah. Yeah, Yeah. I see people who it's like they have halfway learned what they're supposed to be doing on must be true questions, Mm -hmm. and then they just apply that on every question type.
1: Yeah, this answer choice is too extreme. It's I'm not even sure what (laughs) out of scope. (laughs) Yeah, extreme means in some ways. Yeah, in any case.
0: So okay, so that's our advice. Uh, if you if you see real LSAT questions in that book, uh, definitely use those. But boy, really, almost any of the advice that you read in there, I feel like, is going to lead you down the wrong path. So I would not uh, would not check that out. Um, you Ben put a whole bunch of news headlines here on our agenda. So uh, you want to take the lead on this next bit?
1: Yeah, sure. So uh, I'll just go through these really fast. One thing is that. Uh, um Posner retired. Did you hear about this? Uh yeah. Mm-hmm. Sometimes uh known as the tenth uh justice on the Supreme Court. He's not actually that of course, but just uh so well regarded for all the influence that he's had on the uh system. And so for anyone who's at all interested in law, just FYI, he's out of here. And I I guess he retired and like on a Friday and was not coming back this Tuesday. So it was, it's just That's like, it. I'm gone.
0: done. <laughs> Drop the microphone.
1: Nice. <laughs> I wonder what happened. But um in any case, that's that's one thing. The second thing is that I I saw somewhere that um the feds have launched an, a criminal investigation into the Charlotte School of Law. This is the one that just uh got shut down or closed itself down. I don't know exactly what happened, but um now the feds are looking into a potential fraud. I guess they had been uh bilking Taxpayers, uh, in some way, or at least that's how the allegation goes. And I just thought, wow, okay. Um, I guess when these things crash, they they can burn. So,
0: yeah. Well, I mean, we've been yelling about this for a long time. It, it is basically unconscionable what a lot of the the very lowest uh, law schools, right, have been doing. I mean, it, just the value proposition. Uh, when you end up with wh- whatever pathetic number of people that are actually practicing law um, coming from the school, the, like when I mean, I don't, we don't know what it was, right? But it was probably like a third or a quarter of the people that were graduating from a school like that end up practicing. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, so, yeah. Wow, the feds. Yeah. What kind of feds? Like the FBI? I guess. <laughs> Damn. <laughs> Wow, make a run for it.
1: Yeah, so I guess uh, one of the law professors, um, after the school was shut down, one of the law prof- professors came out and said, hey, look, this fraud has been going on, and so sort of a pointing fingers time, I guess. Oh, wow, wow.
0: I mean, it, it must be risky being in the, you better watch out, Ben, with your law school <laughs> that you're starting, because when you— I worry about it sometimes, like doing business just with, with LSAT students, right? I mean, I've been doing this for 11 years and I haven't gotten sued yet, so I think I'm probably okay. But um, like our customers are very litigious people uh, by virtue of the fact that they want to go to law school. But uh, when you're actually running a law school, then you're going to get like just the most litigious people and people who are actually capable of bringing a lawsuit against you.
1: Yeah, I wonder... Um... <clears throat> Yeah, yeah, that's true. I, <laughs> I wonder how much it has to do too with just the fact that when you're educated in the legal process, it's like the first solution you think of, right? Like if you're, if if you're if you're a med student and you are in med school and they start talking about some disease and you have a cough, you start thinking, oh, it must be that disease, right? It's uh-huh. like the same sort of. Mentality. But yeah, exactly. You put these kids in school and all you talk about is case after case after case, which sounds like the normal solution to things. When in real yeah. life, it's not at all, right? Like, I think contracts are the funniest thing. Sometimes people ask me to sign them. And I'm like, look, at the end of the day, we're not going to be suing each other. We're going to be who has the money and who's going to decide, you know, whether this was good or not, and if it's not good, we're going to walk away angry. And that's a lot of times how things end in real life. They don't really devolve to litigation. People just try to work them out.
0: Yeah, I I could just imagine, though, like these law students. Law school already is miserable, right? People hate it. People hate (laughs) being there. They hate each other. They hate everything. They're they're worried they're not going to be able to get a job. Now they owe $150,000 and i could just see i could definitely see people just sitting there steaming in their 2L and 3L classes like drafting up the documents that they're going
1: to use to yeah.
0: sue their own school while they're sitting there in the in the lecture that they hate you know
1: for sure especially if your school is now closing and you've spent oh my whatever on it you know um,
0: oh and i just would love to know you know how much the administrators were making and how much the professors were making and all that yeah uh, at a school like that that now is not going to exist anymore wow all right well good luck for them um see how that goes
1: so this next article is in uh u.s news and i thought you'd love it it's titled how to go to law school for free yeah and basically it just um i don't know reiterates everything that we've been saying that you've been hammering uh in particular, and I think that it's a good read for anyone who's still not convinced. So we'll put that, I think, in the, the show notes somewhere so people can find it. But it's basically just titled How to Go to Law School for Free, and it's in U.S. News.
0: So, was there anything uh, particularly interesting about it? or I mean, it's probably just everything we already no, know.
1: No, I think just affirming that, yeah, like if you think this is a crazy thing that you've heard on Thinking that it's not totally crazy. Um, other people are suggesting it as well it's the way to avoid the trap of law school yet have the opportunity to go and maybe do what you want to do with your life if this is what you want to do
0: it you know what it doesn't say here anywhere it does not mention look at the aba 509 reports Mm, mm -hmm. um which boy you really ought to look at the aba 509 reports because that's just the greatest way that you can figure out how much money they're giving to other people Mm-hmm. You know, you look at their LSAT GPA ranges, you look at their scholarship ranges, and then you should be able to figure out what your value is uh, in the negotiation.
1: Mm-hmm. If,
0: if people were just a little bit more savvy, they could be so much better negotiators when mm-hmm. they are trying to figure out how much they're going to pay. Yeah. Um, and pay, pay close attention to the number where it says how many people are getting more than full rides. Mm. That to me is really interesting. Um, and, and I've seen, I mean, the last few of these 509s that I've looked at, it's been like 4 or 5% at, at almost every school getting more than a full-ride scholarship. Mm-hmm. So they're actually paying you to go there. I mean, it's that's awesome for those people who get that deal. So, uh, yeah, go get yourself that deal. I mean, because if you don't, you're just paying for someone else's rent. Not yeah. only their tuition, but you're actually paying their rent. <laughs> That's wild, dude. That's like, what? Oh my God. Okay. Yeah, anyway. go over to
1: their apartment and be like, wow, this is a nice pad you got here. Oh, <laughs> yeah. yeah. I'm not paying for it. Yeah. You are.
0: Yeah. Thank you. Thank you. All right. What's next?
1: So, this next one is um, I guess there was a law professor at Penn that wrote an op ed um, talking about uh, a decline in cultural values and. Things like that. And a lot of uh, her colleagues, uh, fellow law professors at Penn Law, were really um, put off by this op-ed. And they denounced it and said that um, it was not inclusive enough and things like that. And um, I just came across it because this National Review article, National Review obviously has a conservative bent, but they, they pointed out that the, the faculty's letter... Uh, in response to this op-ed that this law professor had written, was completely devoid of any evidence. It just said, "This is a horrible thing, and it is true." I, I actually pulled up the the open letter, and I was like, "Wow, it's just it's just asserting a lot of conclusions without saying any evidence." Which, of course, you know, is something that we're obsessed with uh, being LSAT people, I guess, if you will, but. It made me think of this book, which I think I've mentioned before, but um, it's called Why the West Rules for Now by Ian Morris. And the thing that's so cool about this book is that Ian Morris goes through um, a bunch of historical data trying to figure out why Western countries tend to be at least um, economically outperforming uh, different regions of the world. And he said that historically, and this is not super surprising, a lot of explanations for, uh, the West's economic success were sort of racist, right? And he said, look, um, I think most people today would reject these explanations, but if you really want to grapple with them and, uh, confront them head on. You can't just dismiss them out of hand. You actually have to like investigate the rationale behind these racist explanations, which are sometimes couched in like cultural terms, and then try to figure out whether they have any merit. And so for the first like quarter of his book, Why the West Rules for Now, he goes through all these like different explanations for why the West might be leading economically. And then through correlation, causation arguments, basically on steroids. I mean, he goes through so many different ideas and um, studies and so forth. He basically debunks these racist theories. And I was just really impressed by that book because I was like, yeah, here it's – someone is actually taking on these arguments and then showing why they fall apart logically, scientifically, as opposed to just dismissing them out of hand and kind of being a little... I mean, it's it's normal to be self-righteous about it, I think. It's it's natural, but it's it was refreshing to actually engage with it on like a logical, scientific level. In any case, if you read the first quarter of this book or listen to it on Audible, you will walk away with a very solid understanding of correlation versus causation because he talks about it to no end. I mean, he talks about studies and shows a correlation and then, of course, hammers home the idea that, well, just because these two things happen together doesn't mean that they necessarily caused one another or vice versa or whatever. But let's, let's go through some other correlations to see if we remove one variable, that correlation persists or not. And so you just really get your mind wrapped around what is the difference between things that are correlated and things that actually have a causal relationship.
0: Cool. Uh, is the video, you have a YouTube link here, is that related to that too or is that something? Yeah, like he
1: that? so he gave a talk at like Harvard or something, I can't remember where exactly, but um, going into his book and what he ultimately concluded. The ultimate conclusion, by the way, for why the West rules for now was that a lot of it has to do with uh, geography and the significance of geography changes over time. So the idea is that... Um, I guess a long time ago, in the West, or at least in Western countries and so forth, there were more grains that could be cultivated. So it made it easier for them to start cultivating earlier than, say, some Asian countries, which has nothing to do with the populations, but everything to do with their geological surroundings. Mm. right? And then he goes into how geology um, or your geography – uh, makes it easier or harder for you to succeed in different contexts. Like why it's easier to succeed in tech if you're in Silicon Valley, given the all the advantages you have of the things and resources around you. Like mm-hmm. different locations make it easier to succeed. And if you get a leg up, then um, that can make a big difference in the long run. But anyways, I know it's total tangent, but uh, I just thought when I saw that article, and I was like, "Yeah, they didn't really provide any evidence as a, at all." Um, I kind of wish that they had gone further and really explained themselves.
0: Yeah, they just are expressing their outrage without actually talking about the underlying argument, right?
1: Yeah, exactly. We don't
0: like your conclusions, so we're gonna just condemn you, yeah, uh, rather than like address the <clears throat> the argument itself. Yep. Um, okay. Cool. Fantastic, so we will have all those links in the show notes at thinkinglsat.com. Um, we got some money?
1: Yeah, Cat. Cat. Yeah. yeah,
0: five bucks. <laughs> Sweet. Very nice, we appreciate that. Thanks, Cat. Uh, how do people donate? They just go to thinkinglsat.com, there's a thing there?
1: I guess so, okay. because all I know is I get an email. I'm pretty sure it's there somewhere, yeah.
0: Okay, Awesome. Yeah. Thanks for helping us to, um, we will not, I will not defray show expenses with that donation. I will spend it on booze. I promise. (laughs) Um, Ben and Nathan, if you use this email on the show, please don't use my name. I have a 3.99 GPA and an LSAT score range of 159 to 164 on my last five practice tests. (laughs) Sounds like a pretty solid uh, candidate there. Yeah. I'm taking the September LSAT, but I'm committed to studying for and taking the December LSAT. I'm confident I can grind out some more points with a few more months of prep. Assuming I score within my range in September, is it wise for me to apply to some of my safety schools in early October and then wait to apply to other reach schools until after getting my December score back? Or should I not apply to any schools until I'm confident that I've achieved my highest LSAT score? Thanks, guys. Love the podcast. Name uh, redacted. What do you think?
1: Well, I guess I'm not totally sure, but from what I understand, it feels like Anne suggests to apply to the schools that are safe and then wait for the other schools because they're not going to look at your application anyway.
0: Yeah, I would. Th- I mean, I, we've talked about this before, that if you apply to a school with a score and you f- are thinking about taking it again, that like bad things can happen, which is, what if they just evaluate your application right away and decide to deny you based on your existing LSAT score?
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Or, <clears throat> best case, they just hold your application and don't really evaluate it until the new score comes in, right? If you checked the box and said, I'm taking it again, they might just put you in a drawer and wait for that score to come in and then evaluate you, in which case there's no upside to applying early. Mm-hmm. But I think we have, I can't remember if we've talked to Anne about it or not, but I've seen students do it and I've advised students to do it. if you know that you're going to get in with your three point, I mean 3.99 GPA and a 160 is going to get you like a full ride to certain schools. Mm-hmm. Right I mean guaranteed full ride to Thomas Jefferson just like right on the website. Boom, full yep. ride, right yep. So if you're gonna I mean if Thomas Jefferson is on your list, then why wouldn't you apply with your 3.99 and your 160 and let them make you that offer? Mm-hmm. Um, at many other schools, you're gonna be basically a shoe- in with those numbers and then you could apply and kind of get the ball rolling on the negotiation.
1: Yeah, they may not give you anything, or they may give you a small thing. But then, when you get your higher score back, presumably higher, you can then use that to say, "Hey, I just got this higher LSAT score. Can we reconsider? Yeah, Uh, whatever. Yeah,
0: they're gonna. They're probably as soon as you if you apply early, they're probably gonna. You know, they're gonna admit you, and they're gonna immediately start giving you basically bogus uh, deposit deadlines
1: Mm, mm -hmm. because
0: they're trying to get their hooks into you. Yeah. Um, But you could just always say no to those, right? (laughs) Sorry. I see that you have given me one month to decide, but I am going to take longer than that. And, um, you know, again, like you look at their ABA 509 report and you can tell what kind of a candidate you are at that school. Mm -hmm. So, uh, yeah, I don't see anything wrong with this plan of applying early to schools where you know you're going to get in. And uh, then that just gives you more time, gives you more information, gives you more time to renegotiate. Um, and then you could wait for your more, you know, reach schools. You could wait until you get that higher LSAT score back.
1: Yeah. So if someone's looking at the LSAT GPA calculator, would you say apply to the schools that you have a 75, 70% chance of getting into? Um. Maybe higher
0: because I mean, if that's chance of admission, that means you are going to get denied one third of the time. If it says seventy percent chance of getting in, Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, so maybe I would say a little bit higher than that. Like I would just say it should be a real like a safety safety if you are going to do it. So you know, maybe more like ninety percent. Just one of the ones where your your LSAT score is above their seventy fifth percentile. Just. Go ahead and do it. Mm -hmm. Or, I don't know. Yeah, I would think like 90%. I might also just look a little bit deeper. You know, the LSAT GPA calculator is a nice, very quick, gets you a lot of high-level information. High-level, is that the right thing to say? Surf It's like surface information Mm -hmm. uh, for a lot of schools at once. So that's really nifty. But you could... If you look at the LSAT GPA or sorry, if you look at the ABA five hundred nine report, you're going to get a lot more kind of granular data and be able to make better decisions. I think. Mm Hmm. Um. Okay. Next email. Yeah. All right. Um. It says, "Dear Ben and Nathan, I'm a big fan of your show. I've been listening for quite a while. Your no nonsense approach to everything is refreshing. Thanks. Now for the question." I've been studying for the LSAT for quite a while, uh, which is since February with a month break due to the birth of my son. I started with a 151 and now I'm averaging 159 to 160. My problem is although I nearly ace the questions that I get to, I can never finish a section aside from logic games, which I nearly always get all the questions, right? I get to about 17 questions and then time runs out on LR and RC. When I try to speed up, my accuracy goes down. I feel that if I can finish the sections and maintain my accuracy, I'll be in the 170s. As I am a 170 plus or bust, what can I do to improve my timing? Thank you. Uh, Call me Jeremy.
1: What do you say? Yeah, so here's one thing. Accuracy is a good thing, and it's good that Jeremy has high accuracy for the questions that he's getting to, but sometimes people get the right answer for, say, question 10 because they read the passage, they read the question, they go into the answers, and as they eliminate the answers, they get down to, say, two answers, and then maybe they go back up and they read the passage again. And they're like, oh, yeah, so I could, I see why B is wrong. Or maybe they don't even see why B is wrong. They just seem to think that C is better. And they end up getting the answer right. But their accuracy is high only because they're allowing themselves the time to think through everything but that time is sort of being invested in the wrong place, right? Like it's it's being invested in debating answer choices rather than really getting a clear picture of what's going on before they go into the answer choices. I um, was just talking to a student the other day who uh, was working on a role question in this particular example, and I said, well, what's the role of that claim Uh I don't want and they, they started talking about answer choices, which is very common. I said, No, 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 I I don't want to talk about the answer choices yet. I just want to know what role do you think that claim is playing in the argument? Do you think it's a premise? Do you think it's an intermediate conclusion? And they had a little trouble clearly identifying exactly what it was doing. So then it's like, okay, step back for a half second. What's the main conclusion? What role does this sentence or claim play in relationship to that main conclusion? And there was a little discussion about whether the main conclusion was what it was, right? There was a little hesitation there. I mean, ultimately, the student was right, but it wasn't crystal clear in her mind. And once that became crystal clear, and then the role of the particular claim that we were talking about became crystal clear, then she went into the answer choices, and it was like, bam, this is the answer. And... I feel like a lot of people can be in that situation where they're getting the right answer, but it's taking them three minutes because it's sort of like they're going through everything, the passage of the question and the answer choices, and then going back through everything again, and then finally kind of settling on an answer, maybe in part because their intuition's kind of telling them, like, hey, that sounds better than this other one, but I'm not exactly 100% sure why, and then they pick it, they get it right, and they move on. They only get to 17 questions, and they're doing very well on those questions, but it's definitely not the most efficient way to go about the test and still reflects a level of misunderstanding, even though they end up getting these questions right.
0: Yep. I think the way to go fast is to spend less time in the answer choices. And the way to spend less time in the answer choices is to be predicting the answer before you ever even start looking at them. Uh, That it applies for so many different types of questions, it applies on reading comprehension questions and logical reasoning questions. It's the really the LSAT superpower. So I think that is a great piece of advice there. Um, What you you spend probably been at least half the time on like a logical reasoning question, you're going to spend at least half of your time before you look at the answer choices, right?
1: Oh, yeah. More like
0: 80% of your time before you look at the answer choices.
1: Yeah. It's like I read an argument, and it's a strengthened question, and if I didn't think the argument was messed up in some way, I'll stop and I'll go back and I'll just sit there and I'll be like, wait, okay, why doesn't this conclusion necessarily have to be true even if it seems reasonable right now? And, and some of these conclusions do seem reasonable. They're like, well, yeah, we are making the assumption that happiness is a good thing. And that doesn't seem like that crazy of an assumption, but it still is an assumption. And now I've pointed it out. And then I think about any other problems. If I don't see any other problems as I carefully think about it, then I go through the answers. And lo and behold, the answer is like, you should pursue things that enhance your happiness. And it's like, yeah, okay, that helps because there, there was that leak. In the argument, there was that hole, and now we've plugged it. And so the argument's good to go, and I'm ready to move on. And I feel really good about my answer, not just like, yeah, hmm, that seems like that would be helpful, better than these others, so I guess I'll pick it and move on, which is a very weak position to be in.
0: Yep, absolutely. Um, It's all the time. I had one in class last night that was a strengthened question. Argument seemed okay. But I thought about it for a second and I was like, well, you know, it's a strength question. Um, what if we could predict a sufficient assumption here? What if we could just make this thing win? When mm-hmm. I mean, we have this premise and we have this conclusion, what if we just bridge the gap between that premise and the conclusion? I took a moment, predicted, uh, you know, I predicted a sufficient assumption, what would be a sufficient assumption. Of course, that doesn't have to be the answer because it's just a strengthening question. You don't have to find a sufficient assumption. But mm-hmm. if you do, that is certainly the answer. Yeah. And I have this predict- a prediction of sufficient assumption. I scan the answer choices and it's just like bang, right there, just jumps right off the page. Just, mm-hmm. Yep. Oh, there it is. Exactly, exactly, perfectly, almost word for word, exactly the answer. And I noticed that it, it took me, it probably took me five seconds to scan the answers and find it because I knew exactly what I wanted. It said exactly what I wanted. That's the answer. Yeah. And it, then you just make you make it an easier test. It's so much easier. I I don't I I like skim the other answers. But I sure wasn't taking much time to think about them because I had already found a sufficient assumption and that's just that's it. That's game over. Um yeah, we we see people all the time. It's a matching flaw question. But, and, and the students down there in the answer choices without knowing really what the flaw, you, they, they're they like, well, I picked B and it's, but it turns out, and I'm like, I don't care. I don't care what you picked. I don't care what the right answer is. Can you please tell me the flaw of the argument? Are you upset about this argument? If you're not upset about this argument, you can't, you're not going to answer the question. I mean, you could eventually sort it out and probably get it right eventually, but mm-hmm. you're going to take five minutes on the answer choices, and or
1: yeah, <laughs> you know what happens, especially with those like parallel flaw ones. Is sometimes they won't identify the flaw. We were actually just doing some last night in class too, and um, I remember uh, someone, someone ultimately one one of the students got the answer right, and a bunch of students were debating this other answer. And I said, "Well, okay, why is this other answer wrong?" Uh, this is after we had identified the flaw, and people were like, well, it's clearly wrong because this is actually not a flawed argument, first of all, and it is talking about like beliefs versus facts, which was the original flaw. It was kind of switching between what some people were believing and then talking about yep. what was in fact true. Yep. But it was doing it in a way that was totally valid. And... um or at least uh, much more valid than the original argument. So everybody's like, "That's oh, it's wrong for this reason. And this one student was like, hey, look, <laughs> I didn't even debate that answer. I just got rid of it because it was like negative, negative, but the original argument was more positive, positive. And I was like, <laughs> unfortunately, that doesn't have anything to do with yeah. the underlying reasoning. You can have arguments that say, if A, then B, therefore, right. <laughs> if B, then A, and that's a flaw, but you could have another argument that says, if not A, then not B. Therefore, if not B, then not A. That's the exact same flaw. The, the whole negative positive thing has nothing to do with its correctness or its wrongness. And so um, I wonder if that's ha- happening sometimes as well. You know, people are like, yeah, my actually is pretty good, but they're getting through these questions incorrectly um, and then trying to figure out why they're not moving past wherever they're moving past, you know, yeah. wherever they're yeah. stuck.
0: Yeah, that makes me think of the the just sort of thumbs up, thumbs down kind of test that Mm -hmm. you need to be able to do. I mean, if it's a matching flaw argument, then you need to know why the argument is thumbs down. It's like, the the argument, this is a stupid argument because, and then you go find the answer that has also that same stupid flaw in it. And you can then just dismiss any answer choice that doesn't have a flaw. If you read an answer and it's logically valid, that is not the answer on a matching flaw question. And so you can kick that out, but it's not doing this weird technical matching up of terms and matching up positive, positive, negative, negative, nothing like that. It's just like, Hey, was the argument good or bad? Mm -hmm. Um, I wanted to say about reading comprehension. I saw a question last night where it was like, you know, what is the author's attitude about something, something like some certain part of the passage? And I asked the students because they had really struggled with it. And I'm like, well, okay, give me just thumbs up or thumbs down. Does the author like this or does the author not like this? And they're like, oh, well, uh, I guess, huh? Yo, yeah. Well, the author likes it. Yeah. Yeah. I go okay, and then you look at the answer choices, and there were three of them that were clearly negative, and two of them that were positive. That happens so often. <laughs> yeah, and and then one of the answers was way too strongly positive. You know, it was just yeah. like ardent sp- something. I'm <laughs> Infatuation. Like, <"There's> no- yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, there's there's no. That's just not. Yeah. So it it actually was super easy because it was just like, well, wait a minute. On the whole you comprehended it, right? Did you comprehend it? We comprehended that the author was generally happy about this. Okay. Now, were they effusively, you know, with the heart eyeballs? Like, were they like that? No, probably not. Okay. (laughs) So then it's this answer, right? And it's just like, it takes no time, but it's that additional moment of just resisting the answer choices and 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 thinking you got to just think about it you got to be predicting it um, okay so I guess we're both doubling down on that advice on uh, logical reasoning and reading comprehension
1: yeah oh and games right it's like it's all of this all of our advice is shift the whole test up do everything yeah. up front and then be re- for ready for whatever they throw at you
0: Yeah. And yeah, maybe that's a good way of explaining it too. And it sounds like Jeremy is doing pretty well on the logic games. And, you know, if you start thinking that the logic games are something like a completely different beast from the logical reasoning, I think you might be leading yourself astray. I mean, logical reasoning, they, the questions are these little engines, right? They're these little machines that are Mm -hmm. supposed to be spitting out some output and there's inputs and there's like this desired output and then you just have to sort of make the machine work. Mm-hmm. And and so it's a lot like yeah logic games where you I mean you're making a huge mistake on logic games if you just immediately dive right into the questions. You you clearly have to be putting the pieces of the puzzle together. Yeah. On the games. Well, you should also be doing that on logical reasoning and yeah, I guess you should also be doing that on reading comprehension too. Yeah. Um Okay, cool. Well, that's uh, Jeremy.
1: Do you want me to read the next one? Sure. Okay. Hey, Nathan and Ben, I scored a 170 on the June 2017 LSAT. Yay. But I was a few points below my average. Boo. So uh, that was what the author said. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I just wanted to clarify. I wasn't You're not a, editorializing. <laughs> Blueing <laughs> <Yeah>. arc. <laughs> a few points below boo. That's like yeah. Uh, so following your advice, in my gut, I have decided to retake in September. I'm trying to get the best go to the best law school possible for as little money as possible. I have a list of approximately 12 schools to apply to, ranging from UNH to Harvard. With my 3.8 and 170, I'm fairly confident I can get big scholarships to my safety or even to some target schools, where at least my LSAT is above the 75th already. My question is whether it'd be worth applying to those schools before I get my September scores back. Okay, so we were just talking about, a.k.a. applying wickedly, wicked early in the cycle as opposed to giving the schools at which my LSAT is already high the even higher lsat and reserve the higher lsat for the schools that i think need it (laughs) that was was a fun sentence uh if it helps my last five practice tests have averaged 174 thank you so much i love you guys whoa
0: i know that's 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 the heart the heart eyes that's thank you heart eyes (laughs)
1: yeah thank you Catherine. um yeah i mean this is kind of what we were just talking about right
0: it is. It's exactly what we were just talking about. So we can probably make pretty quick work of it. Um, I do think she should retake. Uh, 174 is a different, is different from a 170. Um, significantly, substantially different at the top, top schools. So it's totally worth it to retake. And I think she definitely could apply to her safeties with her existing 3.8 and 170. I mean, how is she not going to get... Um, a, in to UNH with something like that. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> the one thing I would, I don't know that applying before the September test really does much f- for you. You know, I, I, I don't know that applying this early in the cycle, we have heard people say before that they just don't really evaluate applications this early in the cycle. In the fall, the, the admissions folks are all like on the road, Doing all of these um, fairs and stuff all over the place, and so they frequently are not even evaluating applications yet. Um, No,
1: that's a that's a very good point. For some reason, I was still sort of in the December versus September mindset. Yeah, this is this is you know this is applying now, wicked early. Right, wicked (laughs) early, as Catherine put it, or Mm -hmm. right after three weeks after the September LSAT. That's still early. So probably just wait and do it all at once. Seems more efficient that way, too.
0: Yeah, I, I think probably not really much of a point applying, as she says, wicked early in the cycle. Um, I guess it doesn't hurt if she's got the applications ready to go and she can just hit send. That's fine. But otherwise, uh, certainly between now and September 16th, it seems like she should be focusing on her LSAT, not on her applications. Yeah. Okay. Um. So that was Catherine. Thanks, Catherine. We love you, too. Um, a few questions from an avid listener, exclamation point. Hi, Ben and Nathan, point. Firstly, huge fan over here. I only wish I had found out about your podcast sooner. I have a few questions and hoping I can gain some insight into how you think I should move forward. Um, okay. Slight wall of text here. I had been planning to take the LSAT this September, but after what seems to be zero improvement in my timed PT scores, I decided to postpone until December. I've been taking a blueprint classroom course since June. My diagnostic was 148, and after our third practice test, I had only gone up to a 150. There are three more PTs scheduled, but I knew that realistically in a month, I would not be able to improve to get the score I would be happy with if I sat for the test in September, However, for the past two prep tests, I have blind reviewed before scoring and have gotten a 165 and a 168, which seems to me that it is possible to score mid 160s. And do you Ben, do you give a shit about that? Do you care? I just don't care.
1: Well, I think it's interesting information, but it's not at all going to tell you what score you can get timed. All it tells you is that you can't get higher than 168 timed because if your untimed score is a 168, then timed, you're going to go down, right? I, I think it's useful. Like sometimes people uh, take to give me their untimed score and it's like, oh, wow, you got a 178 untimed. That means you really do understand a lot of this stuff where, look, this is untimed and it's a 168. That means there's a lot of things this person still doesn't understand even with all the time in the world. So... I, I, I see it as a valuable number, but I don't see it as a number in which you can try to then predict your time score.
0: Well, right. I mean, this seems, aggr- this is a little aggressive. People, I think they tend to think like, well, I got a 165 and a 168 untimed, so then I should be able to get a mid 160s. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, um, I don't know about that. <laughs> That's, you know. Giving yourself unlimited time, like to work on the logic games, for example, Um, you should be able to score perfectly on the logic games if you have unlimited time. Yeah, that that should be easy, actually. If you have unlimited time, you should be able to sort out the logic games.
1: You can just test every answer choice.
0: Exactly. I think that this, the, I think blind reviewing your entire test before scoring is a ridiculous waste of time. I d I, I don't know why you want to do the entire test over again on time. That's just to me, just seems so inefficient. So I don't I don't like it when people do this. If you are gonna do this, I think you need to look at that score and and think of like that's sort of the highest that you could possibly get. Right now. <laughs> right now. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, so I might, I guess I would be, if I, if you do this and you come back with like a one fifty five,
1: mm-hmm.
0: then I would be thinking, Oh my God, like this is going to be a uphill battle for you. Yeah. Um, especially if you've been prepping for a while, you know,
1: mm-hmm.
0: um, anyway, I, I, let's go on here. Obviously I know my problem is working under the time constraint. This sounds crazy, but for the past two practice tests, it was as if my brain completely stopped working. I couldn't comprehend simple sentences or focus, and I would waste time rereading and start panicking. You know, the problem here is that they're not doing enough timed practice. Mm -hmm. You need to do more timed practice. It makes me sick when I think about somebody in a classroom course since June who has only done like they've only ever timed themselves 3 times. Yeah. Jesus. What a waste of like <laughs> three this is 3 months now and you've take you've only sat down and timed yourself 3 times? Yeah. I don't think that is a good plan at all. Why are you doing so much untimed practice? You've got you could be doing a 35 minute section every day. Um And so, of course, then when the clock starts ticking, now people freak out. Um, When I went back to blind review without the time constraint, I would have no problem focusing and picking the correct answer. I feel like I have been studying my ass off, but clearly not enough. So to not see much improvement in my timed PT score and this huge gap between time score and blind review score has been very discouraging. Okay, first of all, everyone's always going to have a huge gap between their time score and their blind review score everyone so that's not you that's there's a difference when you have a limited amount of time there's a difference in what you're going to be able to score. that's just you and everybody else um, and I do feel like you need to start doing 35 minute sections a lot. I mean if and if they're not going to give it to you in blueprint, you should just get yourself a book of tests or I'm sure blueprint gave you a bunch of tests and you should start doing a 35 minute section every day. It says, apart from just doing more timed sections, what do you recommend? Mm, I recommend doing more timed sections.
1: Yeah, the other thing that, um, who's this person? Let's see. Anonymous. Anonymous. Anonymous, um, Needs to realize is that his or her problem may not be as bad as he thinks, right? Like, if it's true that his brain completely stopped working, (laughs) <laughs> then <laughs> you can't do <laughs> you can't do well at all right and then until we get your brain working again we don't know how many questions you got wrong because your brain wasn't working and how many questions you got wrong because you really don't understand this stuff it's very possible that you have made a lot of progress with the class but all of that is being like wasted because you're not actually using it and so start doing 35-minute sections. Start Start getting used to ignoring the time and saying, my cup is half full, not half empty. I think that's what most people are doing is they're like, oh, at this rate, I'm not going to get to five questions. It's not the questions you're not going to get to. It's focus on the questions that you are going to get to. Oh, great. Look, I'm going to get to 17 of these questions. Um oh, actually, now I even have time for one more. Wow, I can do 18 questions this time. Like, it should be a positive thing, not a negative thing.
0: Yeah, and if you can do 17 questions in the section and get them all right, you're going to be scoring a lot higher than a
1: 150. Yep. Yeah, people don't seem to realize that. It's (laughs) like... Well, I, I just did all the, all the reading comp passages and uh, I got 13 right. Yeah. I'm like, well, okay, hold on, slow down. Start doing like just two passages. They're like, oh, I can't do that. I'm like, well, actually, these two passages right here add up to 14 questions. So if you, if you do all those <laughs> yeah. and you get them yeah. right, you're actually now doing one point better. Not to mention all the questions you might guess and get right in the last two passages. Yeah. So it seems this- extreme, but let's get there first and then go up.
0: Let's be realistic and let's stop letting the perfect be the enemy of the good. I mean, I feel like when this student is doing these these untimed blind review, whatever, and getting a 165 and a 168. Now they like insist on wanting to get a 165 or a 168. So then they start timing themselves and they try to do 23 questions per section or all the questions in the section, because that's what they feel like they have to do to get a 165 or a 168. And then that's how they crash and burn at a 150. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Because
0: you're just swinging for the fences. You're, you're going to strike out. So instead of all that, Just if you get in a regular habit of timing yourself so that you can develop strategies that work in a 35 minute section, you don't try to finish everything. You just basically pretend as if it's untimed Mm -hmm. while you're being timed, you pretend it's not timed and just do as much as you can while still getting them right. And boy, it's easy to improve from 150 to 155. And you got to get there before you can start talking about 160. And you got to get there before you can start talking about 165. So I feel for Anonymous, you know, grinding it out for three months, but it's like, has been studying these, these like theoretical approaches where, oh, you're supposed to take eight minutes and 45 seconds per reading comprehension passage so that you can manage your time, so that you can make sure you get through the whole thing. Mm-hmm. <laughs> that's, a, that's not a good strategy for somebody who's at 148 or 150. Nope. That is, a, that is a very poor strategy, and it's because you haven't you know gotten the real time to practice.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think the good news here is that a blind review score of 165 slash 168 is uh, still very good. I know many people who score 148 on a practice test and then blind review the questions that they weren't sure about, finish the questions that they never got to, and they get like a 155. It's like, okay, yeah, you were able to eke out a few more points, but there's a lot of stuff on this test you still don't understand because you're, you're getting it wrong even though you have time to think about it. So 168, um, you're still getting a lot of questions wrong considering the fact that it's untimed, but you're getting a lot of questions right. So it seems like you really aren't using your brain when you're going timed and you just need to start using it by not worrying about the time.
0: Yep, and you time yourself regularly so that you can learn to ignore the clock. That is half of the battle. Yeah. Um, another thing I wanted to ask about is regarding law school applications. I'm planning to apply for fall 2018 entry. I graduated from college three years ago with a degree in musical theater from one of the top schools in the country. And I've been working as an actor ever since. Does this make me a non-traditional applicant? Yes. Um, yeah, it makes you very interesting, I would say. Yeah. I know I need at least one academic recommendation, but I graduated from a conservatory program. All my professors teach acting, singing, dance, not normal things like English, philosophy, economics. That absolutely does not matter in the slightest. In fact, I think it only makes you a better candidate. Yep. They have plenty of English majors. They do not need more English majors. They do need more economics majors but they have plenty of English majors. Um, I have asked the professor I was closest to in college to write my recommendation, but naturally we're both a bit lost on what it should entail. How could a recommendation from a musical theater professor be appropriate for law school entry? Does it matter that it isn't from a traditionally academic professor?
1: Um, You have to work hard in anything that you work on. Uh, so even though some of the skills may not seem directly related, working hard yeah. is directly related. And whatever else this professor was impressed by you, um, right about that. I mean, yeah. law schools are looking for people who are going to come into law school and succeed, not only academically, but also in the classroom, in what they contribute, what perspectives they bring to the table. Um I imagine that acting, singing, and dance perspectives are sorely missed, right? There's no perspective on that in law school. So yeah, I don't know. There's a lot that could be talked about.
0: The whole, yeah, I mean, the what did you bring as a human to your program? I mean, they're going to be able to write about you thoughtfully in a lot of different ways.
1: Yeah. Did you show up on time, work hard and make a lot of progress or did you come late and treat it <laughs> Yeah, right. As something that wasn't important. I mean, those things matter cuz that's going to be that's who you are and that's how you're going to behave in law school most likely. Yeah,
0: how did you interact with your colleagues? Um, how did you respond to adversity in whatever situation you might have had adversity? Um, I don't I think there's a million ways million ways you could do this. So, no, I I think this is going to be absolutely fine. Um, My second recommendation will be from a director that I have worked with on numerous productions. Would the admissions officer think this is too much? I actually have no other choice, as acting has been my life since graduation. Should my personal statement
1: be about something other than acting? So, no, it's not too much. Two letters of rec coming from people who worked with you directly are super valuable. Keep that up. I think you do need to address acting in your personal statement because I think the the admissions people are going to be like, why are you coming here? That's great. We'd be glad to have you, but do you know what you're doing <laughs> and what's your reason? I think I would be very curious as to why this person is making uh, such a shift. It's great. Welcome. Please come. But why?
0: Right. Yeah. I, so I think they're definitely in the personal statement, um, I think you can talk about acting, but it for sure has to be about why you're gonna go to law school. Why law school for you? Why not from, acting from anymore? Acting. Right. Yeah. yeah. What 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 is this? What is it that's drawing you to law school? Um Also, I mean, can we talk you out of this? It just seems so much more interesting <laughs> to be doing what you're doing. But okay. Um anyway. Yeah, you're going to have two recommendations that are both about theater. Your personal statement definitely needs to explain why you're making this shift to law school.
1: This is so random, but last night I just finished a book that talked about a lawyer who became an actor. So, I don't know. (laughs) Um, I don't know which path is better, but I'm saying that there are some people going in the other direction as well. Um, She said that it was hard because everybody's like, What are you doing? Why you you can't make money as an actor? But uh, that's what she did. So, anyways.
0: Cool. So that was anonymous. Thank you for that note. Uh, You want to read the next one, Ben?
1: Sure. Hi, Nathan and Ben slash Jason. Thanks. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. I was hoping that was a one hit wonder, but I guess it persists. (laughs) My name is Mackenzie slash. Michaela. (laughs) Um, You're welcome to use... Oh, good. I'm glad we're able to use your name on the podcast. Thanks. I'm a rising senior. I plan to take the LSAT for the first time in September. That's in a week and a half. And then apply to school starting in October, assuming my scores are good. I'm a huge fan of thinking LSAT and listen to it basically all the time that I'm not studying for the LSAT. Sweet. I've got a couple questions about LSAT prep and law school admissions, and if you could take the time to answer them, I would be very grateful. Mm-hmm. For context, my GPA is 3.5, and my practice tests have been coming in recently around 164 to 166. I've got support and savings to take off work till the LSAT and plan to study basically full-time until then. Um, okay, wait, hold on. Let's stop there for a half second. I don't know that you can do that effectively.
0: Study full time. Yeah. Yeah, I we don't really recommend it. We we would prefer that you just do a slow drip of like an hour or two every day. Um, That said, it's also hard to study for the LSAT while working like a normal nine to five job.
1: Yeah, you can definitely do more, and you also have more time to just like relax, chill out, right? So you study for an hour and a half in the morning then you do another hour and a half in the afternoon and that's totally comfortable totally doable because in between those study sessions you're like exercising watching a Netflix or something and then it's like you can go ahead and then turn your focus again to the LSAT for that hour and a half whereas if you're working yeah it's like you get home it's 6.30 then you have to like eat dinner and then you have to put in an hour and then you're kind of like frazzled and you go to bed so I think it can be a good use of time. I just wouldn't study the whole time, right. which a lot of people sometimes do. Right. She goes on, I'm realistic. Okay. I don't think I will hit the 170 mark, though a 168 is not wholly impossible. According to my, my law school numbers, if I get a 168, I have a chance of getting into Northwestern and Michigan though I wouldn't qualify for any merit scholarships, and I don't think I qualify for financial aid. Uh do you know a whole lot about my law school numbers and how legit they are? I guess I don't no. ever use them.
0: No, I I don't ever use it. I Is that the one that uses the self-reported data? It does. Um I don't know what the point of it is when you have the 509 reports. Yeah. Those 509 reports are awesome. That's a lot of information on the 509.
1: Yeah, and it's concise. It's like the meat. And it's
0: like a legal mandatory disclosure document that is not, you know, user data. Uh, I I would just look at the 509 for both Northwestern and Michigan. I mean, if you're 75th percentile LSAT and 75th percentile GPA, you should be getting 50% scholarship probably or higher. Yeah. And <clears throat> you can just take a look at how much money they're giving. You, you you'll see exactly who's applying, you'll see exactly who they're admitting, you'll see exactly how much money they're giving away. It's like kind of no brainer to look at those 509s. It should be required. They should they should actually like be it should be a law that they have to sit down with you <laughs> and and talk to and like actually walk you through it. <laughs> Actually, it should be required that I sit down with you and walk you through the 509 report before you sign your name on the dotted line. Because like um, when you're when you're gonna sign up to some school and pay full price, I think you should be subjected to five minutes of me pointing out to you the <laughs> what's going on.
1: <laughs> this, this sounds like those like abortion laws. <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah, it's like that and it's
1: also like scared straight. <laughs> Do you know what you're getting to do? <laughs> yeah. Um, oh, great. Well, uh, okay. So, how many people apply to law school every year? Mm,
0: I don't know, thousands.
1: Fifty thousand? Fifty thousand, maybe. Fifty thousand. That's my guess. Damn. Well, think That's about long. it. So, a hundred thousand people take the LSAT, right? Of those, probably fifty still end up applying. Maybe forty. Okay. I don't know. Okay. So, do you have room for forty thousand uh, interviews?
0: <laughs> <laughs> um.
1: We have 33 seconds. Don't go. Okay, next.
0: Yeah, you are getting ripped off. Next. You are getting ripped off. Next. Okay, you're getting a full ride. Good. Good. You're ripping off everyone else. Good.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, you could categorize people. Uh, Being ripped and then ripping.
0: Yep. Cool. Yep.
1: So she says, in short, even if I can get my score up and get into one of the top 14, I would be doing so at incredible cost. Incredible hand, is
0: a good word for it. It is, yeah. <laughs> truly. <laughs> Horrendous. Okay. Is what yeah. <laughs> yeah. Terrible. <laughs> yeah.
1: On the other hand, I have a good shot at a lot of money, perhaps even a full scholarship at a well-ranked school here in my state.
0: Nice. Okay. Oop, don't say the next bit.
1: Oh, yeah. Mackenzie, you have this tendency to tell us what we can and can't say after you've said it. Um, (laughs) The school is redacted, but please don't share on the pod. It looks like a pretty good fit for me, but it's obviously not quite comparable to Northwestern or Michigan in terms of prestige, post grad job prospects. Uh huh. Okay. So I'm looking for some nuggets of wisdom from the two of you. If pearls, pearls,
0: those are called. We call them pearls on the show. Yeah. Come on, pearls of wisdom.
1: Okay. <laughs> uh, if, big if, if I get into one of the T14, is the debt worth it? No. If not, what's the index point at which I can safely stop studying intensively? Sorry, I didn't mean to cut what? you off there.
0: No, that was a one-word answer. Um, the, well, I don't understand this part.
1: If not, what's the index point at which I can safely stop studying intensively? Okay, let's go on. While getting a high LSAT is a point of pride. <laughs> sorry. Um, I don't know why <laughs> that, that made me laugh. Yeah, uh, cool. It's a point of pride. I also like to have fun and not antagonize over just getting a higher point. A point higher. Agonize, sorry. <laughs> what I
0: say? Antagonize?
1: Yeah. <laughs> uh, okay. Yeah, don't antagonize anybody. No. Um... Wait, hold on. You said that the debt is not worth it. I think it depends on what you want to do. Yeah,
0: no, I was being a smartass, but it, it totally depends. you were being she a smartass. Oh, I'm done with this podcast. This is pod.
1: I'm done. I'm out of here.
0: She hasn't said what she wants to do. I mean, if she wants to go to law school and make a lot of money, then she can go to the T14 and take on the debt. If she wants to change the world, then, you know, I don't think taking on the debt is a very good plan, generally speaking. Uh, speaking broadly. Hmm. Uh, that's just my, I, I, I can't yeah. imagine taking on that debt if you don't have a plan to pay it back. And the the only way to pay it back is basically big law.
1: Yeah, if big law sounds intriguing to you, or not, I'm sorry, more than intriguing. That's where you want to be. Then the debt very well could be worth it. Could be, not saying it is. Um. Yeah, can you answer this next question? I'll just take a little break here.
0: What's the index point at which I can safely stop studying
1: intensively? Yeah, yeah. Does she mean the LSAT score?
0: Yeah, and I would say, why? I I, yeah, having fun—that's great, but uh, you want the best LSAT score you can get, just to give you give yourself the most options you can get. It seems like
1: mm, go ahead. Sorry.
0: Well, she's just sort of selling herself short with, you know, I wouldn't qualify for any merit scholarships and I don't think I qualify for financial aid. Financial aid, There, that's not a thing. That's lo- there's loans, you know, you're going to, there's merit scholarships, which are basically LSAT and GPA, and then there's loans. Um, but an, another LSAT point or two or three can absolutely get you merit scholarships at top schools, even schools in the top 14. Um 3.5 GPA is not awesome so you know I don't know that she's gonna be like even with a 170 she's maybe not getting a full ride to Northwestern or Michigan but there's other schools that are around the top 14 and there's 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 just lots of law schools out there mm-hmm. so I don't know if I were, if I were her I would be trying to eke out those last few points and uh, it's just you can have a lot more fun after the test is over,
1: (laughs) I I guess. I don't know. I would base it more on when you run out of times to take it. Like it starts getting December and it's like, okay, this is probably your last shot if you want to apply this this round.
0: Right, right. Mm
1: -hmm. All right. My second question involves the test itself. I tend to do a lot better at individual time sections than on the test itself. I think my brain runs out of fuel, sputters, and dies somewhere around section 3. We have a writer here. I know you hate being asked for tips, but got any tips for on preventing this? Um, yeah, do do uh, full-length tests more often uh, if you can, if you have time. The other thing is um, around section 3. Hmm. I was gonna say, what are you eating during the break? Sometimes people don't eat, and they could benefit from a little food. But I don't have any, I don't have any other advice.
0: Yeah, I my only advice there is gonna be get better at the 35 minute sections. I mean, you're you're doing well in the 160s, but there's it's taxing when you don't understand things. And so, if you just continue to get better at the content of the test, I think you will uh, find that you don't sputter. Uh, halfway through nearly as often
1: she goes on regarding study habits i've read the rc and lg bibles i also watch seven sage explanations of games i'm scoring pretty high on lr overall averaging minus two on the first game first section and minus four on the second okay those are too close to call so i have not yet mean anything doesn't mean anything so i have not yet been focusing on that I study five to six days a week. Well, I hope you're focusing on the ones you're getting wrong at least. Yeah. Those are easy points to pick up for you if that's a strength. Yeah. She goes on, I study five to six days a week. I take a practice test and review the test every week, twice a week if my head isn't exploding. Okay, that's not, that's not bad. Two tests a week at most. The other days include taking and reviewing ta- a time section, then studying the books for question types or sections I struggle with. Uh, okay. It seems like every time I turn my head away from RC, my score there drops. So I've been studying that more consistently. I've been studying lightly since May, intensely since the last week of June. I wonder what she means by I turn my head away from RC. To me, everyone should be studying all three sections a little each week, Uh, You should be studying more of what you really suck at if it's really different from the other sections, but you should still be doing something from those uh, other sections. Sometimes people are like, oh, games is my weakest section, and so then they go and they do a bunch of 35-minute game sections, but that's all they do, and I just feel like it's not the best way to prepare. You should still be checking in with LR and RC. Well, she is, though. She's doing a practice test
0: every week, and she's doing timed... So, I mean, she's at least doing one section of reading comprehension every week. It sounds to me like she's just maybe not really reviewing her mistakes. She's Mm. pulling the lever on the slot machine, just seeing what number comes out, instead of, you know, yeah, if you do one reading comprehension section a week, and you thoroughly review your mistakes, that should be enough that you're not going to have your score plummet. I mean...
1: Well, I don't that's understand. I guess how does how is it plummeting if she's not like compared to last week? I, I guess. think
0: that's what it is. So that's the other thing is that it's it's probably. I mean, just because I've seen people do it so many times, it's probably just focusing on tiny little pieces of data, right? Yeah. <clears throat> and uh, making too much of you know finding trends where trends maybe don't exist. Yeah.
1: Thank you so much for reading my lengthy email, Mackenzie. No problem, Mackenzie.
0: Yeah, thanks for writing. Hopefully that was helpful. Uh, hey, Ben and Nathan. I'd prefer if you didn't use my name uh, if this ends up on the podcast. Okay. I've told you both before, but I love the podcast. I know you guys are pretty busy these days, so feel free to answer or not answer whatever you see fit. <laughs> okay. Uh. A quick background on me. I'm a Marine Corps vet with an Ivy degree, a good GPA, and soon two master's degrees. So I know that I'm in a good place to apply to law school. Of course, I have also set my sights quite high, reaching for Harvard and Yale, hoping for NYU, Berkeley, or Penn at a minimum. I mention this because I have a few questions about my application, and I assume strategies may change at the upper end of the spectrum. 1. I have heard you mention multiple times that you should retake the LSAT if your practice scores indicate that you can do better. My first question is how to balance this against the advice to apply as early as possible. So far, I have taken six practice tests over the past few weeks, 160, 66, 68, 68, 62, 71. I'm fairly confident I can make it to the mid-170s once I tighten up my logic games. I'm not sure, however, that this will happen in time for the September test. Assuming it doesn't, is the benefit of getting a few extra points enough to outweigh the risk of waiting to apply until I have taken the December test? Um, In a similar vein, is it a better idea to apply with a passable score and then send it updated results, or do I wait until I have the results in hand? Everybody's asking that question these days. Uh, We already talked about it. I suppose my fear is that schools like Harvard might auto reject me if I send a 171 in September, but not if I can send a 175 in December. Um, I think that's going to, you're going to have to look at that case by case, and you're going to have to look at the ABA 509 report. Agreed. You know, I, like, at some schools, you're going to have a better chance. Other schools, you're going to have a worse chance. And, yeah, four more points might get you over the hump at a school like Harvard. And so in if, if that's the determination that you make, then you should wait. Um, I don't know that we can give much better advice than that. I, I can't, I don't think.
1: No. I think um, this question is coming up a lot because we're facing the September and December LSATs, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. And um, although it is later in the application cycle to apply after the December LSAT. Uh, It's not unreasonable by any means. Most people apply in mid-January anyways. I don't think that a lot of people realize that. Um, I think if you're facing this decision later, if you're looking at, should I take it in December and then apply, or take it in February and then apply, at that point you really do have to take it in December, apply, and then hope to boost your chances later with the February LSAT because you're starting to get too late there. Some some schools won't even accept your uh, February LSAT. So I think uh, the metrics changes a little bit there. But for now, uh, in general, if you can't get in for sure with the scores you have and you think you can do better, then take it in December and stop worrying about it.
0: Yeah, and anyway, stop worrying about it until your September score comes back because there's just nothing you can do about it, right? I mean, you should just yeah. do the best you can on September Probably keep studying uh, during the three weeks while you wait for your scores to come back and uh, then figure it out once that score actually comes back. People like to try to solve problems before those problems even exist. Yeah. Um, Because the other thing is, if it's just logic games for this guy, that could click in the final week and he could end up with his 175 on the September test, which makes the whole thing moot. So um, yeah, good luck.
1: Yeah, the other thing is for games and reading comp, uh, there's more volatility because maybe the four games they decide to give you happen to be games you're cool with and you do unusually well. You don't need to tell anybody that, but that boosts your score and then (laughs) you're done.
0: (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. And same thing can happen for reading comp. Yeah. Um, Okay, good point. Number two, regarding LSAC GPAs, my undergrad GPA was a 388 Uh, I stressed a lot about my LSAC GPA because I received an associate's degree while still in the Marine Corps and my grades were not nearly as good. In anticipation of the discrepancy, I began writing an addendum in my head. At the time, I was working 80-plus hours a week in the military, missing classes for training cycles, and literally writing essays in fighting holes and in the back of Humvees.
1: Oh, my goodness. Solving problems before they become
0: (laughs) (laughs) problems. It sounded like a good justification to me. The thing is, when my LSAC GPA came back, my bad community college grades only dropped me from a 3.88 to a 3.82, which is not too bad. The question is, should I still include an addendum or just let it go? It's all true. And it did have an adverse effect on my earlier grades. But given the small difference, will including it just make me look like I'm being too defensive?
1: Yeah, I don't think. What would you say in your addendum? Uh, Actually, I just wanted to note that it would have been a 3.88. Like, that's that's not going to help you, I don't think. Interesting. I was
0: going to say, sure, go ahead and do it. Really? Yep. Especially if 3.88 is, you know, they're going to have pretty narrow GPA ranges at Harvard. I mean, let's just yeah. look at the Harvard I guess so. I guess so. Really I...
1: Quick. Cause it's now it's close to a three nine.
0: Yeah. My my gut is telling me it's factual. Mm. Lawyers like factual arguments. Uh, I just don't see how it can really hurt you. Um Three point. Yeah. So their 50th percentile is 3.86. So this actually goes from below the three, below their 50th percentile to above the 50th percentile. I, I would think if you don't waste their time, if you write three sentences, you know, don't, it's not a second personal statement. Don't go. It sounds like he, he's already been, well, he said he's already been like drafting this in his head. Right. And it's sounding a little glorious,
1: Well, I wonder if part of my aversion to this is that he seems to be reaching for many things. Working 80-plus hours a week in the military, missing classes for training cycles, and literally writing essays and fighting holes and in the back of Humvees. It almost seems like what exactly... I guess all of these come back to time, but I guess I'd rather just stick with the 80 hours a week. Say I had a commitment to put in 80-plus hours a week for the military, which gave me limited time to focus on classes. Yeah, Do you exactly. feel like these explanations are like, it almost seems like chaotic. Protesting
0: too much. It's sort of like what we were talking about last time, where it's like, I believe you, but they might not, because <laughs> it just sounds too much. Yeah. It sounds too crazy. The, the literally writing essays in fighting holes... And in the back of Humvees, I mean, you could probably leave that out. Yeah. Uh, But, you know, write write three sentences uh, and point them to the fact that, you know, without these grades, your GPA would be this. Or even better, point out that your um, university GPA was a 4.0 or whatever it was, Mm
1: -hmm. right?
0: Your associate's degree, this was a GPA from that, and this is what you were going through at that time. And then once you got done with your Marine Corps obligation, you went to... (laughs) Um, whatever university, and there you got a three point nine five or whatever it was. And if it's Wait, all I just factual, he got a three,
1: I got yeah, I thought he got a three eight eight. With I think
0: it's a three eight eight overall. That's undergrad GPA three eight eight. That's like on his final undergrad transcript or whatever. And hmm. then the LSAC because of the conversion, whatever, it drops it down to a three point eight two. But if you just point out the fact that you did better it's Because it is an increasing trend And there does seem to be good justification for the earlier lower grades I can't see how this could hurt if you just do it in like three sentences
1: Yeah, because then either they say okay or they just ignore it
0: Yeah, and you didn't annoy them because it didn't
1: take their whole day
0: <laughs> um, Okay, last question, again somewhat related to my time in the military I had always intended to write a diversity statement. I'm a straight white male, but I come from a lower class family. My mother never finished high school and no one else in my family has been to college. But with a lot of good fortune and a little hard work, I made it to the Ivy League. So I thought that would be worth including. I was all set to write about that. But then I read somewhere that one of the top 14 schools had some abysmally small number of veterans in its incoming class, something like four, if I remember correctly. It occurred to me that this might be an even better diversity angle. Mm. However, I had already intended to write a personal statement about how the military inspired me to study Arabic in undergrad. I don't want to appear one-dimensional or seem like I'm leaning too hard on the veteran thing. Should I avoid pointing out that they don't have many vets and I could add to
1: diversity in that way? I think if you're going to write a personal statement about your military experience, then your military experience is going to be very obvious and they don't need to know that they don't have many vets. They know that.
0: Yeah, um, right. And I think that's a perfect personal statement. And I think I like the uh, mom didn't graduate high school, first generation college student. I think that's a perfect
1: diversity statement. No, that's great because m- most people who come from that situation don't end up in law school, right? Let alone college. So right,
0: right. Um. Just a fun follow-up to my... This was a, another e- another email, but it was a follow-up. Uh, fun follow-up to my last email since I stumbled upon these stats after emailing you. The top 14 school with the abysmally low veteran enrollment was Michigan, which brags of three veterans in an incoming class of 305. Um, I mean... I, That seems like criticism of Michigan law, but how many people are applying? I mean, (laughs) I don't think there's a lot of veterans applying to law school. Mm
1: -hmm.
0: Um, By comparison, there were five Fulbright scholars and at least 12 Native Americans, 4%. I have no reason to suspect that this is an outlier compared to the other schools, but I could be wrong. Best redacted. I would be careful. I wouldn't be mentioning any of this to them in your application anywhere. You don't need to tell them that you think they have they have an abysmally low veteran enrollment. Yeah, uh,
1: if if four of them if four vets applied and they accepted three of them, that's they're doing the best they can, I guess.
0: Well, you're insane if you think that they are discriminating against veterans. That that's not a thing. That is absolutely not happening. They love veterans. They know that veterans have like discipline and um, they got every reason in the world to admit veterans that apply. So if they're not admitting veterans, it's because they haven't gotten qualified applications from veterans. So just take it easy. I, I guess <laughs> you, you definitely do not ever want to look like you are bitching about your station in life or you know, that you feel as if you are being discriminated against already before you even apply. So yeah, just, I would not put any of this stuff in there. You agree, Ben? Yeah. Yeah. Okay, cool. Um, you want to leave it there or should we do one more or what?
1: Yeah. Um, oh man, how many do we have left?
0: (laughs) So many. We're, we're like about We made it through seven pages of Agenda today, and we have seven pages left.
1: Oh, that's pretty good. We hit the halfway mark. (laughs) Yeah. Thank you, everyone. I think that's probably good for today.
0: Yeah, thanks for listening. Um, Please email the show, help at thinkinglsat.com and we will put your questions onto our agenda. If you wanna learn about Ben's products and services, you can go to his website, uh, which is strategyprep.com. If you wanna learn about my products and services, you can go to my website, which is foxlsat.com. We each have uh, free resources. We each have a full online program that you can study uh, anywhere you happen to be, and we would love to work with you So, yeah, check out our sites if you want to do some business. Otherwise, uh, tell a friend. We love getting those emails from people where they uh, are uh, harassing their whatever LSAT class they're taking, harassing people into listening to the show. So, yeah, do that. Go to iTunes, hit the five stars, write us a review. Um, I guess that's it. Ben?
1: Yeah, the only thing I was going to ask is I haven't asked you in a while. Um, do you know what the download stats are lately?
0: Oh, um, yeah. Should we take a quick peek? Sure. Maybe the audience would like to, would like to hear.
1: Sure. I remember a long time ago you mentioned some Hold numbers, and I've been, been telling that to people, but I don't know if it's—maybe it's gone down. Maybe people have left now <laughs> just lying about the success of the podcast. I swear Let's we get 12 downloads a month. Yeah,
0: let's take a look here. Um, Okay, well, we have made it up to, in our complete download history, we have made it up to 518,000 episodes downloaded. Sweet. And we are coming off of our biggest month ever, August of 2017, we had thirty nine thousand episodes downloaded. Holy cow! Yep,
1: that's I. Last time I think we talked, it was like twenty thousand
0: or twenty twenty. Yeah, twenty thousand. I think that's what you told me. <laughs> well, the year so August twenty sixteen was eighteen thousand episodes. Okay. Yeah. And then August twenty seventeen is thirty nine thousand episodes. So as long as we just keep growing at one hundred percent year over year. <laughs> As long as we can keep up the exponential growth forever, we might really make something of this.
1: Yeah, dang. Then we might actually have to encourage people to consider law. <laughs> <laughs> well, we've I'm run out ever. of law applicants. We'll start telling people it's a good thing. Really, I think you should go start <laughs> listening to our podcast. We need the numbers to go up.
0: Yeah, you're not going to hear me ever do that. Um, no, that's awesome. Uh, what I guess we could look at the geography. As well, because that's yeah. I couldn't remember. Was
1: it was North Korea the only one that didn't have anyone downloading, or (laughs) did they have like five or six? I can't remember what we figured out about that.
0: I don't know. Our listenership is still uh, extremely heavily weighted to the United States, at four hundred and thirty-eight thousand episodes downloaded. Uh, The second place is China with twenty-seven thousand, then Canada at twenty-four thousand. Uh then Japan and Korea and then a bunch of other places Wow um, If I look at this world map Yeah, we we've covered most of the map. We have uh, no episodes downloaded in Greenland ever um, it doesn't even show us the name of the countries that when you don't get any downloads, it doesn't even show you the name of the country. That's a <laughs> problem because I don't know the geography, the geography of Africa. <laughs> yeah, um, <clears throat> we have had now. I'm gonna see if I can find Korea. Oh yeah, still, still no, nothing in North Korea. Okay, I think we are banned.
1: That's
0: mm-hmm. probably for the best. Um and I guess how about you want to hear about US states? Sure. California 76,000, New York 42, Texas 30, Virginia 19, Florida 18. Goes down from there. DC 17, Maryland 15. You got all those tiny states around you, Ben.
1: Yeah. So.
0: <laughs> You're doing pretty good in the in the DC area.
1: Do you know that we call it the DMV?
0: The DMV? Yeah. Because it's District of Columbia, Maryland, Maryland Virginia?
1: Yeah. It threw nice. me off when we first moved here, you know, because I'm, I'm from California, as you know, and yeah, the first thing I think of when I think of DMV is the Department of Motor Vehicles. And I still remember someone tweeted once, they said, I'm looking for an LSAT class in the DMV, and I was like, <laughs> what the hell is wrong with these people? <laughs> <laughs> but I was obviously the idiot.
0: Okay, Uh, should we leave it there? Yeah. Awesome. Okay, thanks everybody for listening. Again, it's help at thinkinglsat.com and uh, we will talk to you soon.